another high-profile team pops up in the JT Miller trade speculation. It is Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who also does fantastic work covering the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Canucks back on the ice today after a day off yesterday. Of course, they're getting set to host the Calgary Flames, the uh, juggernaut all of a sudden Calgary Flames, tomorrow at Rogers Arena. We'll talk a little bit about that, but... Drancer, we got to start with uh, our colleague. You know, he he is the insider in the NHL for a reason, Elliot Friedman. He, he flexed his muscles a little bit on Sportsnet TV last night during the Leafs Columbus broadcast, suggesting that if you know the the Toronto Maple Leafs might be interested in JT Miller. And I got to say, kudos to Friedman for stirring the pot and getting two of the largest and most passionate fan bases. Uh, in a tizzy, based on about an eight-second audio snippet from the TV broadcast last night. <laughs> yeah, a lot of fun. I mean... It's great! Yeah, so the Maple Leafs have looked like they're going to lose Jake, uh, Jake Muzzin, right? And Jake Muzzin has a five-plus million-dollar cap hit. And so all of a sudden, this Leafs team that looked like they were going to be... Or have to be extraordinarily creative in bringing in any pieces at the deadline and buying in any meaningful way just because of how pressed up against the upper limit of the salary cap they are all of a sudden they have space right and so not a huge shock to hear them begin to be tied to a variety of pieces whether it's JT Miller whether it's Mark Giordano right I mean you could see some other pieces come up here too uh, but they're going to be tied to some of those guys who may cost a fair bit more than they would have been able to be tied to even a week ago just because of the op- the flexibility that's now opened up as a result of the Jake Muzzin injury. Of course, the fact that a player gets hurt and it allows a team to add in this manner, uh, it, I don't like it. There's something I don't like about it just in terms of the way the NHL system is, is built. We obviously see situations now with Nikita Kucherov's surgery and obviously with what's going on with Mark Stone in Vegas where fans – sort of roll their eyes almost at player injuries. I, there's something unhealthy about that overall, but I, I don't really know how you'd fix it, particularly because the LTI system does ultimately function the way it should, which is allows teams to replace injured guys. JT Miller to Toronto, a very interesting possibility. The problem with it, from my, from my perspective, if I'm looking at it from what Vancouver's potential trade partner would would be looking for, you know, the, the logic, I guess, would be let's try and find something that gets John Tavares's line going, right? Let's let's get someone to help John Tavares's line. So you'd, you'd be looking at a Miller-Tavares-Nylander second line. Not too shabby, no, right? I mean, that sounds bad. great. That sounds great. But the Leafs have significant needs on the back end, right? Their defense is just not fast enough, particularly considering the way that Florida plays. And the way that Tampa Bay plays, right? The way that their most likely first-round opponents play hockey requires a really mobile defense. And I don't know, when you look up and down that Leafs defense, if outside of Brody and Morgan Riley, there's enough of the sort of speed that can get you moving in the right direction. And, and not just moving in the right direction, because it's not just a puck-moving thing. I mean, go back, get a puck, right? Turn, 
and get the puck out of your end, right? That's the area for me that the Leafs have struggled the most, especially when Riley and Brody are not on the ice this season. Um, you know, I know people want to point to their overall like mental fragility or what have you, but stylistically, what's the biggest threat to the Maple Leafs having some success in a really tough division in the postseason this year? For me, it's the mobility of their back end. JT Miller obviously makes any team he's on better, but... I still think their need on defense is more significant, and I won't be shocked to hear them linked to some of the defenders we might expect to move here, whether it's a guy who we saw over the weekend in a, in a Mark Giordano or you know a, a John Klingberg or a Jacob Chikorin. Perhaps we'll see the Leafs linked in those sort of uh, trade discussions, that, that sale process out of Arizona in the days ahead. But those, those are sort of the, the needs that I would think are more significant, larger for this Maple Leafs team as opposed to a forward like a JT Miller. The last thing I'm, I'm curious to see is how tempted will they be as a result of Jack Campbell's run of brutal form. Uh, the last 10 games have been particularly bad. The Columbus game was particularly bad last night for the Leafs, but you know, dating back really through about December 1st, the Maple Leafs' save percentage has been atrocious, one of the worst in the league. Um, at what point do the Marc-Andre Fleury to Toronto rumors start? Because that feels like an inevitability here at some point, too. So, going to be interesting from a Canucks perspective, looking at Toronto, you know, I do think there's some really interesting opportunities for a potential buyer when you look at, at where the way the Maple Leafs are constructed, right? Uh, first of all, they've got a couple of really good prospects. Toppy Nemal as the defender with the right-handed shot. Stylistically, that would seem to be the Canucks's, you know, like the fit that makes the most sense for this organization. Obviously, they've got the draft picks. They've got the the incentive, the motivation to sell draft picks and, and have some success considering how limited their playoff success has been over the past five years. Um, Matthew Nyes is a really, really good prospect. Uh, one would expect him to be sort of the centerpiece of, of any effort that the Leafs sort of have to to add a player of, of a JT Miller's uh, caliber, of JT Miller's type. Um in, in the weeks ahead. But on their roster, too, you've got a 25-year-old defenseman in Travis Dermott, right? Really good puck-moving defenseman, really good defensive results every time he's been a regular. But he's become marginalized as the Maple Leafs have deepened their back end over the years. Um, that, to me, is is the sort of opportunity that you'd love to see a team in Vancouver's shoes take an opportunity or like take a flyer on, right? Like that's the type of player that maybe could be better in a punt and hunt Rutherfordian system as opposed to the way that Toronto plays uh, with the emphasis on puck possession. That would be the sort of uh, opportunity that I, that I would have to think would interest the Canucks. And then another, another name that I think is really interesting out of Toronto, especially with the way that Jim Rutherford likes to construct teams in mind would be Ilya Mikhaev, who's an, a UFA after the season. Um, so going to be very difficult for the Maple Leafs to retain. He is an absolute burner, right? Like he is an absolute burner. And the industry believes that his priority, uh, once he hits the market, is going to be finding a team where he can play a bigger offensive role, like finding a team that he can play top six minutes with. So, you know, I think when you look through and, and think about that, you know, if the Canucks were a team that had the type of defender – uh, that, that could help them take advantage of the opportunity that's now arisen in, in Toronto, you know, you'd love to do it. Like, there, there are some really interesting pieces that I think could help this team in the years to come 
um, you know, at the prospect level, the draft pick capital, obviously, but also some relatively affordable NHL level players that I think you could dream on and, and see being a better fit for how Boudreaux and Rutherford want to go about winning games than they maybe are in Toronto or, or maybe could excel if placed into a bigger role uh, in Vancouver. The, the issue that I sort of see there is while JT Miller, you know, <laughs> JT Miller is obviously an attractive and a big name, a big ticket item for the Canucks as a, as a potential deadline seller, but I don't know that they have the sort of pieces that might put them over the top in terms of how the how the Leafs will end up wanting to spend their one bullet to add salary, right? Like they only have one opportunity to add one big piece here. Uh, are they going to, at the end of the day, want another forward? Or are they going to end up trying to shore up their defense and, and their goaltending? I'd bet, I'd bet the latter, right? Like just looking at it, thinking about it from their perspective, thinking about what that team needs. I'd bet they end up going in a different direction and shoring up the sort of uh, defensive side of the game, the, the defensive mobility, maybe maybe try and add like a big ticket starter type to help um, to help them, you know, compete in, in the event they find themselves in a series with Andre Vasilevsky. Yeah. So that would be my sort of expectation. I, I just don't know that the Canucks have the pieces to put themselves over the top in making that type of deal. And and I think that sort of underlines how delicate this club's posture is overall, right? On the one hand, you have some really good players, and JT Miller being probably the least complicated player in terms of him having just max value on the trade market without, you know, the, the sort of, well, but it's a really long-term deal like Connor Garland has, or, or what about that QO like Brock Besser has, right? He's the most straightforward, high-leverage trade ship the Canucks have, but... Can you throw in the other pieces that may, would make it make sense from a, a, a team like the Leafs' perspective? Like, oh, but we also have this puck-moving defenseman that can help you. And maybe he's not a great player, but, you know, he's a Ben Hutton type or he's a Ilya Labushkin type, right? Like, it, it puts you over the edge in terms of uh, appealing to them to use that one bullet. I, I just don't know if JT Miller ticks enough boxes to put the Canucks in the driver's seat um, as they sort of, or as the Maple Leafs anyway, work through what to do between now and March 21st. And and that, I think, speaks to the work that, that this club still needs um, to put in to, to put themselves, you know, in a, in a better spot overall, to, to just have more flexibility, more assets uh, to make those types of deals and, and take advantage of those types of opportunities. 650-650 uh, is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Get your thoughts in about a potential fit between the Canucks and the Toronto Maple Leafs on a JT Miller trade as speculated by Elliot Friedman last night. And we should point out that he expanded uh, a little bit on the Jeff Merrick show today, kind of confirming that, you know, this isn't a report of trade talks between the two teams. This is more uh, an opinion. Friedman. Yeah, it's an opinion of him saying, <laughs> I, think this, I think this would be a really good fit. But he also did say, to be fair, that one, he knows the Leafs are interested in Luke Shen, and that's kind of, as you said, not the puck-moving defenseman, obviously, that they would be looking for, but just more physicality, more veteran presence on the back end. The type of player uh, is what Elliot Friedman said that the, the Leafs would be interested in in Luke Shen. And he also said that he would be very, very surprised if there wasn't at least a phone call or two from the Leafs to the Canucks to check in on the JT Miller situation. And, you know, as you laid out there, 
the Leafs have other priorities, other areas where, you know, from an outside perspective, certainly it would make more sense for them to add as opposed to another top six forward, even though, again, JT Miller, you know, he improves any team that he's on. But the fact that, you know, Elliot Friedman, again, who's obviously as well-connected as it gets, is putting this kind of speculation out there. To me, it just confirms that if you're a contending team, that has salary cap space, right? If you're a contending team and the salary cap isn't an absolute barrier to you making the deal, you're going to at least think about JT Miller. You're going to at least be interested. And, uh, you know, what's happened here with the Leafs is that all of a sudden they've been given an opportunity to take that one big swing, as you said, to use that one bullet. And even though JT Miller might be a luxury option for them as a top six offensive-minded forward, he's such a valuable asset that they have to at least think about it they have to at least weigh okay yeah we need help on defense we might need help in goal but this is JT Miller should we actually use some of our assets to go out and acquire him and to me it just confirms that not that we didn't know this but it's just another piece of evidence that the Canucks have an incredibly valuable asset on their hands right when a a smart team and and yes I know there's you know criticisms to be made about some of their roster construction, but I believe the Leafs have a very smart front office. And again, the fact that they would be willing to use their assets to pursue this kind of deal just shows how much value JT Miller has around the league. Now, ultimately, you know, would they be willing to part with the prospects that the Canucks would want back? Is there actually a fit there? Who knows? But to me, it just reinforces the logic of the Canucks exploring the possibility of trading a JT Miller, of trading JT Miller at this deadline, right? This is a guy that very, very smart contending teams, if they have the opportunity to do it, are going to be interested in. And I think the other thing is, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago, nobody would have, would have brought up JT Miller and uh, to the Toronto Maple Leafs, right? But circumstances change, and all of a sudden they might be interested, and they might not be the only team that finds their circumstances change between now and the deadline. And if you do get, you know, another high-profile team or two more high-profile teams, does the possibility of that kind of godfather offer that forces the Canucks' hand, does that become more likely as more teams may get more interested in JT Miller headed to the deadline? Because I still think it could take a, a truly massive offer to pry JT Miller away from the Canucks at this deadline. But the more teams that have that salary cap space, the more teams that get interested, the more likely you, likely you are to receive that kind of offer, too. Well, especially because it looks like some of the JT Miller options have dried up a little bit, right? The Calgary Flames added to Foley. The Minnesota Wild have decided that, in fact, you know, they, they need cheap labor. They need guys who aren't expensive next season when the Sutter-Parise buyout cap hits become really unwieldy. Uh, so maybe Miller is not the most sensible option for them, right? That's according to Mike Russo. So uh, my athletic colleague and, and sort of the godfather of hockey beat writers. So, you know, I, I do think having another buyer, a motivated buyer, a buyer with deep pockets and, and a fair bit of asset capital to shop with, with which to shop, right? Uh, and that's something the Leafs certainly have, right? You go through Nyes, Robertson, uh, Nimala, right? Yeah. And then and then Dermott, potentially, right? Maybe Kerfoot, uh, sorry, not maybe Kerfoot, um, Lilligren, right, who's sort of been up and down for them, but a big right-handed defenseman. I, I think he'd have a ton of market value for some teams if that was something the Maple Leafs were willing to consider. You know, if they really get into shopping for a, a big piece or multiple big pieces that make a ton of sense for them this year and next, you know, could a Rasmus Sandin 
be be a, a, enter the conversation, right? I mean, those are the sorts of, and obviously I brought up Mikhaev, right? So, I mean, this is where the Leafs are positioned. Now that they have cap flexibility, they are a highly attractive buyer with whom to do business if you're if you're a team in the Canucks' shoes. And, and there are obviously knock-on effects too with the potential for bidding wars or, or what have you um, from a Vancouver perspective as you look through what could happen with some of their pieces, including, uh, obviously, the, the one who's been linked directly to them in J.T. Miller. Mike in Port Moody texts in, how much does J.T. Miller's value drop if he's not moved by the trade deadline? Because, of course, acquiring T would only then get one playoff run versus two. That's kind of the million-dollar question, right? And I know the the Canucks front office, both Jim Rutherford and Patrick Albine, have been very kind of pointed in public about, hey, we're, we're this is not an urgent situation for us, right? We are not under the gun to trade any of our high-profile players here, not necessarily talking about JT Miller specifically, but more in general, but obviously you can read between the lines and apply that to JT Miller, and I think that's fair. It's not, obviously, he's not a UFA there this year. There's no, you know, absolute... Uh, scenario where it's either you're trading at the deadline or you're losing him for nothing. So I understand that. the The question is, how do you balance moving him now when teams would obviously get him for two playoff runs, and that we've seen in the past how valuable that can be for contending teams versus potentially having more teams interested in the offseason when there might be more salary cap flexibility. And the other thing is, how does your ability to clear salary cap space in other ways, right, by moving guys that aren't your kind of premier high-end players, if you are able to do that before the deadline or are unable to do that before the deadline, how does that change your approach to trading a guy like JT Miller, right? Those are kind of the two factors which are going to determine – how far down this road the Canucks actually go by this year's deadline. For sure. And we have a text in from Mike in Port Moody who says, how much does JT Miller's value drop if he's not moved by the trade deadline? Acquiring team would only get one playoff run versus two. So it's a really interesting question, one that's been hotly debated. And I'll get back to the moving mid, the middle class contracts thing before break. But I, I want to talk about this really quickly. Look through what trades, like how trades actually work, and what you'll find is that they are effectively a exercise in collective or collaborative problem solving between competing groups. Right. So, the Toffoli deal is a really good example of this because the Flames have a lot of uncertainty up front um, beyond this season. Right. You've got Kachuk, Mangiapane, and Johnny Gaudreau all expiring, and Gaudreau is a pure UFA. So. The fact that Toffoli's locked up for two years beyond this one at a really valuable, right, like a really efficient cap number gives you some cover as you work through raises for two key RFAs and, you know, potentially losing, although certainly at least giving a big raise to your top offensive driver in, in Gaudreau, right? So there was a, a particular need that that deal solved for the Flames in the big picture that made Toffoli additionally valuable for them and made them eager to pay up in advance, right? Look at the Labushkin to Toronto deal, right? Where the, you know, Arizona Coyotes sort of surprised the industry by taking back Nick Ritchie's backloaded contract, which has $3.3 million in cash next season. That's eight hundred k above the cap hit number. That's not the usual type of contract that the Arizona Coyotes take on. But what the Leafs do there is they make a deal that sheds salary for next season, but they do it at the deadline in the same deal that they 
also acquire a depth defenseman. We're so used to seeing teams shed like a fifth-round pick for a defenseman, a sixth-round pick, Oscar Fantenberg for a fourth, um, you know, Ben Hutton, just to use ex-Canucks for, for fun, <laughs> uh, for a fifth, right? I mean, we see that deal every year. So the Leafs folded it in and basically made one deal, right, which was both to shed salary, the type of deal you may, you'd maybe make at the draft, and to acquire a depth defenseman, which you'd usually, you know, just part with a mid-round pick for. And they gave up slightly more pick value to accomplish both in one shot proactively. Um, you know, it's about finding that fit, that unique sort of, um, th- that unique opportunity that, that works for both sides. Uh, another good example is Nate Schmidt, right? The Nate Schmidt deal for, I mean, Vegas dealt Nate Schmidt here to Vancouver, who had interest in it because they'd lost all their UFAs, Right. Um, so that it opened up space for Alex Pietrangelo. That was the Canucks taking advantage of a unique situation. When they then chopped Nate Schmidt on to the Winnipeg Jets for basically the same asset price a year later, right? The deal made sense for Winnipeg because Winnipeg loves to acquire good players with term since those players don't sign in Winnipeg as UFAs, right? That was another unique opportunity. So the way to look at it is that some teams like the Minnesota Wild example we brought up, would look at JT Miller having multiple years of term and say, hey, that's not actually for us. We stru- we'd struggle to fit that in next year. Whereas other teams would be like, okay, that's good cost certainty for us this season and next, and that works for us. That enhances the appeal of this player to us. So it's, it's really a, a situation-by-situation thing. But typically speaking, as the term declines on a contract – the number of potential buyers increases, right? When it's an expiring deal, everyone can afford it, right? When it's a term deal, it has to be with a team that particularly wants both of those years at that cap number, right? And so when you look at a team like the Rangers, they would seem to, because they have cap space now, because they have cap flexibility this summer, you know, they would seem to be an example of a team that would benefit from locking in a guy like Miller for this season and next. For the Leafs, you know, I'm not so sure, right? I think that would significantly complicate their next, like their off season in the event that they were to acquire a guy who was not expiring. Um, it, it really goes sort of case by case, but as a general rule, as a general rule, uh, a team for whom the contract fits perfectly, like a like a very satisfying final puzzle piece, right? Uh, they will pay more for the for the pl- player whose contract perfectly fits what they're building. Um, but typically speaking, as as term diminishes, a player's value goes up. On the on the middle class contracts and what the Canucks can accomplish there, really difficult, right? Tanner Pearson, no trade clause, full no trade clause. Travis Hamonic, limited no trade clause, hasn't played much this season. Tucker Pullman, currently injured. Jason Dickinson, far from living up to his contract, or looks like an, a replacement level player, frankly, for for most of the season. Those deals are very tough to move. I would be stunned. Like, I would consider it a Houdini-quality escape where the Canucks to find even a dollar-in, dollar-out trade. If they're able to shed one of those deals without parting with significant futures ahead of the deadline, uh, that would be a mammoth, a mammoth accomplishment, like a highlight reel goal uh, on the management level. (laughs) Uh, You can't expect it. You can't expect it. And that's partly why... I think the conversation is centered around Vancouver's really, really good players. Because if this team is going to carve out the type of cap space they absolutely need to carve out, it's going to have to come from the more valuable pieces on their roster. Those are the pieces that teams are willing to invest their finite cap space into. As a result, I think those are the only 
ways. Those are the only realistic avenues that the Canucks have to carve out cap space. Well, the and, and as you said, if you're looking at moving some of those other middle class deals, it likely means if you want to get rid of the you know entire salary and not take bad money back in return, it likely means attaching assets with those deals. As we all know, the Canucks don't have a lot of those types of assets, extra picks, prospects. So if you are able to even, you know, you move one of your high-profile players who's very in demand around the league, and then maybe you can use some of those assets to clear up even more salary cap space by potentially trading uh, one of those middle-class contracts. But again, it starts with acquiring some of those extra assets that you can use in that way. Uh, Marcus and Gibson's text in saying, uh, Toronto doesn't watch Western games. Just tell them Pullman is a solid 3-4 defenseman and include him in the package. Try to try to slip that one past them uh, with well, the JT that, Miller deal. I mean, that's the, that's the thing. Like, people are like, would the Leafs be interested in Tyler Myers? It's like, what about the no. way that that team is run makes you think that they'd be interested in Tyler Myers? No, no. You know, like, you, you, you what you want is to – you're going to deal players like that you want to deal them to teams that really value size on the back end right like there's a few of them um and those are the teams that you need to target for those types of deals uh the Leafs aren't one of them right like they need speed Vancouver doesn't have back end speed outside of Quinn Hughes they're not trading Quinn Hughes no that makes them an ill fit in my view um as like the team to pounce and and it'll be very very interesting and very good for us in the content business jamie yes. that the leafs now have cap flexibility leading up to the deadline yeah this uh, the elliot friedman speculation just the tip of the iceberg where as that is concerned just because yeah. as you said in the nhl content business uh, very very good for generating that interest <laughs> as elliot friedman demonstrated once again uh, in his expert does, way does last the national night. hockey media like talking about toronto just a little bit just <laughs> a little bit even more than I do. I know. Goodness. I was going to say. <laughs> don't, don't, I don't know why you said the national media. <laughs> All right. Oh, boy. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lover text line. Keep your thoughts coming in. Uh, we'll read a text <laughs> on the other side talking about JT Miller and Bo Horvat. We'll get into that conversation on the other side. It is the Canucks Hour. Sportsnet 650. So the Leafs folded it in. He folds it in. I, I understand that, but how, how do you fold it? Do you fold it in half like a piece of paper and drop it in the pot, or what do you do? He folds it in. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Canucks insider Thomas Drantz here as well. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Also, as a reminder, make sure you subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a five-star rating and review as well. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Get your thoughts in. And, uh... Drancer, we were talking about the JT Miller to Toronto speculation, rumors, whatever you want to call it. This one came in early, but I did I did want to read it before we moved on because uh, I think it probably encapsulates how a lot of Canucks fans feel. It's from Greg the Dairy Farmer, he says, How great would it be to get a ransom for JT Miller from Toronto and then see them flame out in the first round anyway? Hashtag perfect world from Greg the Dairy Farmer. And I, I've seen some Canucks fans say, no, I don't want anything to do with a Toronto trade. I don't want them to have a player like JT Miller, but uh, I like Greg the Dairy Farmer. He wants the, the big return from Toronto and then still to root against the Leafs' success in the playoffs. Um, another text that I wanted to read 
from KK. And this is uh, this is a point or a thought that in some form comes in a lot whenever the JT Miller trade speculation conversation happens again. And KK says, at what point did this new regime deem Horvat an untouchable over JT Miller? Wouldn't the team prefer to keep Miller, who's a point-of-game player, and the motor of this team with that speed element versus a, two, a number two center who's less effective offensively and less fleet of foot? Thanks from KK. So the the whenever the talk of, okay, what could they get for JT Miller, who would be interested in JT Miller comes up, this sort of text comes in, right, about, well, hey, hold on a second. Why is everyone bent on trading JT Miller? Yeah, if you're looking at the two guys who are in this situation of being, you know, important core players who have only one more year left before their UFAs, would it not make more sense to trade Bo Horvat instead? And I am still very much in the camp that says, no, I, I would rather keep Bo Horvat here and explore a JT Miller trade option than then go the other route. And who knows, maybe the Canucks are looking for a way to keep both long-term because they like both players. But while he is undeniably struggling right now, certainly over the last stretch of games, and this has been a down offensive year for him, I would not be so quick to give up on Bo Horvat, give up on what I still think he can provide for this team. And then again, it comes down in large part to me to the age difference and what their next contract is likely to look look like. And I just think you're so much more likely to get Bo Horvat on a team-friendly deal on his next deal than you are for JT Miller. Yeah, I have no question. Also, Bo Horvat's a center. And I know JT Miller plays center, but Horvat's two-way impacts as, center, as a center, uh, he's also a younger player are far better than JT Miller's two-way impacts as a centerman. I know Miller's the more productive player, but, um, you know, for me, Horvat is the more valuable piece, uh, straight up. Like, I don't, I don't think there's – I don't think that should be that controversial, to be totally honest with you. And I know that Horvat's two-way impacts aren't elite, aren't high-end. He's not, like, the shutdown guy that, that some people want him to be, perhaps, but his – overall ability to move the river in the right direction at, at five on five. And, and granted it's mostly done as a result of his offensive abilities. Um, and, you know, he's certainly not the distributor that JT Miller is, um, you know, outweigh for me, uh, Miller's superior point production. Like there's more value there for me. So, you know, when I think about Bo Horvat and I know he's taking a lot of criticism in the market at the moment, you know, I see the type of player and person that this organization really needs to keep, in my opinion. Like, he's the type of guy you need. Like, it's hard to find really good people. It's hard to find really good players. And it's really hard to find both, uh, especially with how well-calibrated Horvat is to dealing with the day-to-day pressure and media obligations in this marketplace, right? He has more value here because of how unflappable he is than he would for most other teams in the NHL, to be totally honest with you. I just think you have to be very, very careful about moving on from that type of, you know, unique fit, especially when you play in the fishbowl that is Vancouver. And you you mentioned, you know, Bo Horvat and the frustration, I think, that a lot of people have that he hasn't developed into that kind of prototypical two-way defensive shutdown center. And we know, we've learned a lot about kind of when players peak from an offensive point of view in the NHL. And Bo Horvat Horvat is 26. He turns 27 uh, in April 
this year. So are you going to expect, you know, him to reach another level offensively? No, I, I would expect what we've seen from Bo Horvat is going to be kind of his level in terms of offensive production in the NHL. You never know, right? Strange things happen, but I think that would be a reasonable expectation. But I will say, I don't think it's out of the question for a player like Bo Horvat at his age to take meaningful step forwards as a defensive player, as a two-way player, as somebody who can help on the penalty kill, right? Like, well, I think sometimes when we talk about players peaking at, you know, 24, that might be offensively from a, a standpoint of counting stats, but I think they can absolutely still improve and add other elements to their game as they get into their late 20s, right? And I think not that you can necessarily bank on that kind of improvement from Bo Horvat, but I certainly don't think it's out of the question, right? And then, you know, as you talk about his fit as a person and kind of the leadership he brings in the the media environment of Vancouver. You know, I also just think this is a guy who was first round draft pick by the team. He's played it his, his entire career here. And, you know, if he signs, let's say a seven or eight year extension with the Vancouver Canucks at the, you know, after this next year, or after his deal is up, if he signs a long-term extension, he is going to, climb up the franchise leaderboards in a lot of different categories, right? Because he started playing for the team that's so young, because he's been on the lineup so consistently, like he has a chance to really be a kind of, I don't want to say a franchise icon, to be, but to be a major part of franchise history here in Vancouver. And I do think that has value from a team perspective. And again, when you're talking about trying to get a player on a relatively team-friendly deal, you know, I have no idea how much that kind of, sentimental or intangible thing matters to Bo Horvat, but Bo, those are the kinds of things, right? The fact that he has such a long history, the fact that he spent his entire career here, those are the kinds of things that can help you work out, you know, a deal that doesn't break the bank for a player. And I think you just kind of add that all up, right? Add the value we've seen from him on the ice in years past, his age, the the fact that he is the captain, the fact that he's been such a fit uh, as a person here in the city, there are so many reasons why I would be incredibly, incredibly hesitant to really go down that road and explore trading Bo Horvat. Here's one more for you, Jamie. Bo Horvat, right, is having a down year offensively, but there's a lot of evidence that that down year is mostly peripheral. First of all, there's the fact that just about every offensive player on this team who's not JT Miller has had a down year offensively. That's a, a big data point. Kind of reminds me of that Tortorella season where everyone bounced back <laughs> thereafter, right? Um, sometimes you have years where things just don't go your way. And and in the Canucks' case, I think there was a pretty sig- significant systematic change. Um, they've also brought in a defense. Like, I don't know that forwards are getting enough clean passes in the neutral zone in stride. Can't, can't remember the last time I saw one uh, that wasn't, you know, launched by Quinn Hughes himself. So, you know, I, I do think that there's a lot of reasons why you look at Pedersen and Besser and Horvat and think that they are likely to produce far more next season than they did this year based on their track records. Additionally, with Horvat, lowest individual point percentage of his career, that's, a, that's an ephemeral stat that will come back uh, to earth. Uh, especially because his shot rate and chance rates are relatively consistent. Lowest shooting percentage, five on five uh, of the last five years for him. Uh, low on ice shooting percentage, too. So even his line mates have been unlucky when he's been on the ice at five on five. As a result, there's a chance for you to open extension talks <laughs> this summer when he becomes eligible for an extension, uh, you know, I think it's July 13th, with a player coming off of a down year. That's good. That puts you in the driver's seat. Yep. Right. Whereas, again, JT Miller's stock is so high 
because of his production, because of the fact that, you know, this club runs the power play through him. And he's one of the very few Canucks players whose percentages haven't been unkind to him over the course of this year. So, you know, again, it's like a mad scientist thing. You're, you're stock trading, right? You want to sell high, buy low, right? Or sorry, you want to sell low, buy high. Nope, nope, sell high, buy low. And that's right. Hor- Horvat's an opportunity to buy low, uh, whereas JT Miller would be buying high, right? And 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 vice versa in terms of their trade uh, value uh, at this deadline. So I think you have to keep that in mind and weigh that very heavily, particularly because, you know, Jamie, when we look at the task ahead, right? And I, I think it's really important. I know, I know that I've been a lot lower on this team really since the start of the season than most in this market. I think even going into the season, um, you know, I, I never really saw the Canucks as having more than an outside puncher's chance at, at being in the playoffs, right? I, I didn't think that they were as good as the Alberta teams. I didn't think they were as good as Vegas. You know, I, I sort of thought that L.A. would probably pass them this year, which has, in fact, come to pass. I didn't see Anaheim coming, and I didn't see Seattle being this bad. But for the most part, Vancouver's kind of where I expected them to be, albeit with a slower start than, than I anticipated. And I continue to be pretty low on this team, right? I, I know that some in this market, especially after the Boudreaux bump, got really excited about being in a playoff race, and they're not. They're just not. Like, they're 94% likely to miss the playoffs, according to the Athletics' latest projection today, and that's as a result of the Anaheim-San uh, Jose result yesterday. Flames on Thursday, pretty tough road trip coming up, right, with the Rangers, the Islanders, and the Maple Leafs all on the schedule. And the Devils, the easiest game on the on the slate, is the second leg of a back-to-back schedule loss. So really, really in tough for the next five games. I think that's going to decide matters. But also, I don't think we need to see how the team performs over the next five to know who they are. And and we've talked about this a lot, and, and I think it's high time, especially as the deadline approaches especially as the Canucks' most valuable trade assets are pretty much uniformly healthy right now. I think it's high time for this organization to begin to chart that path forward. But, you know, it's not going to be, in my mind, a one-year thing, right? This is not about a team that can sell now and bounce back next year. Maybe they can. Maybe they can. But if they're going to, they have to bounce back with a bunch of very modest bets that don't further tie their hands because... As you look across this Pacific division, right, is your goal going to be to, like, maybe they can pass Edmonton? You know, like, maybe, maybe, sure, but the Flames are going to keep coming. There's a lot of really good young players on that team, too, in addition to their sort of veteran, more veteran core. The Vegas Golden Knights, um, you know, Jack Eichel is going to figure it out. Jack Eichel is really, really good. That team is going to be an absolute buzzsaw for, for years to come. And then you've got Anaheim and L.A. You can't you can't just stay in place, right? Look at L.A. The the Chikorin trade talks and rumors are the perfect example. Everyone in the industry basically believes that L.A. holds the cards there because they have this limitless, um, you know, arsenal army of prospects coming. And so if they decide to pay up, they're going to win that bidding, right? They're going to. And if not then people understand that it might be an Eastern Eastern team. It might be Florida. It might be something like that. But the, the Kings kind of hold the cards there, and they're going to continue to hold the cards for years to come. Various situations that emerge, they're going to have the ability, because of how they've managed things, to accelerate and accelerate responsibly. Um, 
considering their structure right now. And they're already better than the Canucks, and they have that flexibility going forward. Like, it's not enough to improve a bit next season and be in the playoff mix because teams like the Ducks and the Kings have more prospects, more younger players, and more flexibility to improve fast. And, you know, I mean, what this team needs is probably more dramatic than one offseason, and they're back next year ready to make a playoff run. Like, it's, it's going to be more dramatic than that because of where they are and how little options they have here. And, and I think, you know, the Horvat chatter, the one area where I'm a little sensitive to it, right, where, where I think, okay, you know, maybe you have to consider that, is if you really believe that this club's two, three years away from taking any sort of meaningful step then I think almost everything outside of Hughes, Pedersen, Demko has to be on the table. But, you know, if you're going to try and do something quicker than that, if you're going to accept that, yeah, you might be a fringe but playoff team again next season, but the year after that, that's the important one, um, which I think is probably the timeline you have to take, considering that you've got those young players in, in place, the fact that you've got a young starter, that you've got a 1C, that you've got a 1 defenseman. Um, you know, you have to be able to build a pretty good team around those guys in, in 18 months to two years. So I'm, I'm sensitive to that. And in that world, I do think Horvat's part of the solution. But if you do determine that you think it's going to be a little longer than that, and that's the type of decision we've never seen this organization make in the last 15 years, so I'm skeptical we'd suddenly see it now. But if that's the determination you're making, then then I can understand making a, making a Horvat uh, deal. Uh, otherwise, though, I, I just think he's part, as a 2C, as a really good 2C, I think he's part of the solution in Vancouver. I, I think that's beyond clear, just based on his caliber as, as both a person and a player. Yeah, I think the way I kind of look at it is, on his next deal, whatever that is, can Bo Horvat be the second-line center on a legitimate Stanley Cup contender? And for me, the answer is yes, right? And, yeah. you know, as you said... Okay, if you want to look longer term, then does that become a more realistic possibility? Moving on from him, sure. But, I mean, what have we heard from Jim Rutherford about, you know, the the dangers of a rebuild, right? About how once you start a rebuild, everyone gets antsy. It's hard to actually go through that process. What we've heard mostly is, okay, maybe we take a short-term step back as a team, but then we get back to contending pretty quickly after that, right? So I, I think you're right when you say the way – if, from what we've heard from the new front office, the timeline they're looking at is, okay, we can take a step back next year, but after that, we want to be winning. We want to be in the playoffs. We want to be trying to contend. And I think in that timeline, yeah, it makes a lot of sense uh, to keep Bo Horvat around, even if you're exploring trading some of your other high-end players like JT Miller. Uh, well, and yeah, and this, brings me, this brings me to the urgency question, right? The urgency question leading up to March 21st, right? Because... Jim Rutherford, the Canucks front office, have all to a man said, you know, w- w- there's no rush, right? We're not dealing with a ton of UFAs. Um, you know, if we get an offer, we can't refuse. That's one. Otherwise, you know, we're perfectly happy to navigate things in the offseason. Um, you know, we're going to take care of some business, but not everything, right? Uh, depends on the offers we get. They're strengthening their bargaining position, and I'm never going to criticize anyone for strengthening their bargaining position. That's the game. That's the game you play. But... I do think it's important to note that not beginning to clear up the space required to massively upgrade this roster (laughs) um, at the deadline would be a missed opportunity for me, right? Like, there is no urgency in, in 
stealing JT Miller now versus the draft, but there is urgency for this team in beginning to carve out meaningful flexibility so that you're capable of pouncing on opportunities this offseason. Um, they do need to add assets. You do need to add tradable pieces very badly to this club. You do need to add draft picks because that's the most valuable form of currency. They do need to begin to set this organization on a path that can lead realistically somewhere beyond the mediocrity this franchise has been stuck in for the last decade. And I do think that's going to require some proactive moves ahead of March 21st, even if on a case-by-case basis I think the Canucks are, to this point, and with what they've said publicly, charting the right course of, of insisting, in fact, that the pressure is not on them. Well, well, that's the thing. Outside of Tyler Mott, right, who's the UFA, who we've talked about it, you do have to make a decision one way or another on, right? Outside of Tyler Mott, there's no actual urgency for any individual move, right? There's right. no there's no pressure to make a decision on any specific player. But when you zoom out, there is urgency to, to start the work of either, one, improving the roster, or at least putting yourself in a position where you can make other moves that are going to improve the roster farther down the road. Because, yeah, again, like any individual player, you can look at it and say, well, you know what, we can do that deal at the draft if we decide we want to do that. But you can't leave all of your work for the draft, right? You have to get, you have to get started on it. You have to do some of it now, right? It's, it's, you know, think about it if you're, uh, you have to do spring cleaning around your house or whatever, right? And it doesn't matter what order you do things in necessarily, but you got to start at some point. You got to start chipping away at it. And I do think that there is, you know, it is incumbent on them to start that process at this deadline. Marty the Red texted in. Uh, earlier saying, serious question, guys, what action or lack of action by the end of the trade deadline would leave you disappointed with the direction of the team? And for me, that's it. Like, standing pat in some way or making kind of one minor (laughs) move, that would be a major disappointment, despite the fact that, yeah, you could do a bunch of deals at the draft. I think it would still be disappointing to see them not at least start to make moves of of some weight and importance before the deadline. I'll put an objective. I'll put an objective measure on it. All right. Um, right now, I project the Canucks to have thirteen point five million in cap space um, this this off season. Right, thirteen point five. That's assuming that Halak hits his one point five million, and it's assuming that uh, that's that's it for bonus overages. So not not a perfect estimate, but a rough estimate. Thirteen point five back of a napkin. For me, a, a massive success, a smashing success, would be to have my estimate be at twenty three point five million on the other side of the trade deadline. I would consider that a massive win. I would be like that is fantastic work this team now has meaningful flexibility they bought themselves some time to figure out things and to make some smart moves this season this offseason well done kudos for me a acceptable level would be five extra million 18.5 that means you've at least ducked to lock and made one other deal to clear space so for me that's sort of the minimum that you need um with the idea that you can then carve out more at the draft with Miller or Garland or whomever, right? So, I mean, I do think, I do think it's it's a, that the range for me, eighteen five, I would say is is sort of the minimum that I'd be like, well, that's well done, good job. Uh, Twenty three point five, I'd say that's a fantastic deadline. This team is now well set up, and I know that fans talk so much and think so much about the returns, the potential returns, the mining of great assets. I I, I barely even care. I, I honestly think the that's a bonus. 
that's a bonus. The, the club's fun, like fundamental challenge, to use my favorite watchword, the fundamental challenge is to just create some avenues, give themselves some options to improve. And, and right now, unfortunately, with the way that this team has been assembled, with the way that this club has continued to push chips in and then not hit on the river over the course of the past five years, um, they don't have those options. It, yeah, it's uh, it's a tricky situation, and it's one that there is, uh, you know, don't worry. We will have plenty of more coverage and speculation and reports and rumors <laughs> ahead of the trade deadline, which is uh, now under a month away. So we are we are inching ever closer to seeing what actually takes place at the deadline. But tomorrow, yeah, they're back on the ice hosting the Calgary Flames on a 10-game winning streak. We will dive into that tomorrow. Jamie, yeah. I don't think I'm going to get much pushback when I suggest that Tanev, Markstrom, and uh, Toffoli deserve a, a, a big standing ovation. Oh, that That is going to be fascinating. It's going to be absolutely <laughs> fascinating tomorrow. They deserve it. We will cover that in depth on the Canucks Hour tomorrow. It's the People Show up next with myself and Randy Janda. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.